we have a very special speaker today. He was with us last night. John's been a great encouragement to me over the years. I, I just met him once, I think, when I was in, in seminary. And he had spoken in, in the chapel at my seminary. And I, I struck up a conversation with him. I don't know if he remembers this, because uh, he talks to a lot of people. But uh, he said to me, I can just tell you're going to be a good pastor. And it just meant a whole lot to me. That was the prophetic gift. <laughs> it's, it's a visionary gift. It's, it's yet to be seen, right? But um, he has been a personal encouragement to me. We've been reading through Mission 119, which he'll share about a little bit, where we've been reading every day and hearing a commentary from Pastor Soper. It's been such a blessing to so many of us and such an encouragement. And uh, I just hope you'll jump into that with us. But before we, we start, I'm going to just lay hands on him and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for John. I thank you that he and his wife could be here with us. I pray that the word that you put into his heart would be anointed by the Holy Spirit and that our ears would be eagerly listening to what your word is for us today and that we would not only hear it, but we put it into practice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nathan. I'll be truthful. I don't remember that. But... Uh, God knew, and uh, he was right. Good morning. This is Pastor Soper. <laughs> Even when I preach on Saturday nights, I have to start that way now. Uh, that's what people want. So last night, I got the chance to meet a number of you. How many of you were not here last night? Okay, so I'll ask you one of the questions. I, how many of you think... That's not the way he's supposed to look. That's not how I envisioned him. Okay, I got a few of those last night. One guy came up to me later and said, you looked exactly like I thought. So, <laughs> Anyhow, it's a delight to be with you. Uh, this is my first time being uh, in Saratoga Springs. I have been at South Glens Falls a long, long time ago, and some of you may have been there when I was in that church, but uh, God's given me the privilege of being in lots of different churches in all different parts of the country and all over the world, and it's always a delight to be with his people. I bring you greetings from my new congregation, a church plant in Morristown, New Jersey. I retired from the lead role at uh, uh, Ridgeway Alliance Church in, in White Plains, and uh, that was in May, and now we're part of a church plant again, and it's kind of like coming back to my roots, and we enjoy that. It's a wonderful place to be. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 1. That's not a passage you read today, but this week, but uh, I talked to Pastor, and this is the one we kind of agreed to, to focus on today that I think will be a good introduction. How many of you are doing Know the Word on a regular basis right now? Great. Lots and lots of you. Well, I hope that uh, after this morning, there'll be a, at least a few more who will venture into the, uh, the daily habit of starting the day with God's Word, or ending it. Not everybody does it in the morning. Some people get upset because I always say good morning. That's because that's when I do it. But uh, if uh, evening is your better time, then that works too. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, 
whose leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, help us this morning as we come before your word. Help us to uh, come with open hearts and to hear what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us about how this very familiar passage relates to us right here, right now, in Saratoga Springs on this particular day. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So the auditorium was full of people, adoring fans. The music was loud. The crowd was swaying and swooning over the music of America's first icon of rock and roll. Elvis Presley was in the house. And all of a sudden, Elvis stopped the music. We can go to the next slide. There we go, yeah. All of a sudden, in the middle of a song, Elvis stopped the music. And uh, he pointed to a banner that had just been unfurled in one of the balconies. And the banner said, Elvis is the king. And uh, he said, thank you very much, but uh, please take that banner down. Because Elvis is not the king. Jesus Christ is the king. And he wouldn't start singing again until they took that banner down. A startling declaration in the middle of a rock concert. But Elvis wouldn't start again until they took the banner away. If you know very much about this astonishing uh, icon of rock and roll, you'll know that in spite of his many obvious weaknesses and inconsistencies, through all of his life, he consistently identified himself as a devoted, though admittedly weak, follower of Jesus Christ. The beginnings of Elvis' career were in gospel music. He used to sneak into the back of the concerts of a group called the Blackwood Brothers, a gospel group, and they would let him come in and listen to their music. The only Grammys Elvis ever got in his career were for his gospel songs. And uh, a lot of musicians in Las Vegas refused to play with Elvis because they knew that when the show was finished, he would compel them to come back to his room and jam all night long playing gospel songs. And they didn't want to do it. An incredibly talented rock star who wanted to be a follower of Jesus, but whose life ended tragically without him ever making any impact for Christ. But it does make me wonder, do you think there'll be an Elvis sighting in heaven? I need you to help me here for a minute. I need you to think of the name of a righteous man from the book of Genesis, okay? Um, so most of you have a little bit of familiarity with Scripture. You got a name in your head? Okay. How many went for Abraham? Obvious choice. I mean, Abraham was the father of the faithful, the father of the Jewish nation. Uh, and uh, that would be a great choice, not the name I had in mind. Uh, how many of you thought of uh, Noah? Another obvious choice. The Lord looked down and Noah was the only righteous man on the earth. And uh, God sent the flood and started again with Noah and his family. Be a good choice, not the one I was thinking of. How many thought of Enoch? Uh, Enoch. Who's Enoch? 
Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. He was a righteous man, so righteous, one of two people in the Old Testament who never died. God just took him straight to heaven. Enoch, who, you know who the other one was? Elijah. Uh, you could go for Abel. Somebody might have thought of Joseph. Any Josephs? Yeah. Uh, all good choices. Maybe even Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. But none of them are the name I have in mind. How many of you thought of Lot? Lot? I didn't see any hands. And that's pretty understandable. But, but here, here's what Second Peter says about Lot. God rescued Lot. If he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials. Now, if you know about Lot, you know he lived in Sodom, not a, not a great place. And the story of Lot is a very interesting story. But I, I wouldn't have thought of Lot as a righteous person. And apparently none of you did either. That name would surprise us because we don't think he was a righteous person. We don't think that. I mean, there's not one record in Scripture anywhere of the man named Lot making even one righteous decision in his whole life. Now, obviously, he made some, but the Scripture doesn't tell us about any of them. Let, let me kind of review with you the story of Lot. Okay, he... Uh, he was Abraham's nephew, and God called Abraham to leave the city of Ur and to go to a place that he would take him, didn't tell him where it was, and he was going to start a new nation with him. He was going to bless him, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So in Genesis chapter 11, that call comes to Abraham. Abraham leaves the city of Ur, and he takes his father with him, and he takes his nephew, whose name is Lot. That's the first time we hear about him. All we know is that Abraham took him with him. In Genesis chapter 12, we find that they kind of made a pit stop for a little while in a place called Haran, halfway between Ur and the Promised Land. And Abraham's father, whose name was Terah, died there. And then Abraham continued the journey to the Promised Land, and he took Lot with him once again. Okay, once again he's mentioned, but we don't see anything about him other than that he's with Abraham. The story really starts in Genesis 13. Abraham's now in the Promised Land. And uh, Abraham has uh, been blessed by God to the point at which he's become a very wealthy man. He has lots of flocks and lots of herds. And uh, Lot, his nephew, has also become very wealthy because God has blessed Lot by virtue of his relationship to Abraham. And Lot's got lots of flocks and herds. And the problem comes when their flocks, their sheep, and their herds of cattle get so large that the flock, uh, the, the, the herders, the shepherds, and the uh, cattle herders start to fight with one another because there's not enough pasturage. And so Abraham takes Lot to the top of a high hill. How many of you know this story? Lots of us, but not all of us, so I'll tell you a little more. He takes him to the top of a high hill, and he says, Look, uh, look all over the land, as, high, as far as you can see, and you choose where you want to go, 
and you take your flocks and your herds there, and I'll go in a different direction. You get to choose. And um, that way there won't be any more competition for the pasturage, and you'll get along, and I'll get along, and God will bless us. So Abraham gives Lot the choice. And Lot makes a choice. He stands there on the top of the hill. He looks down, and he sees this very well-watered plain, perfect place to raise sheep, perfect place to have cattle. And so he takes his flocks and he goes down to this plain. The only problem is that the scripture says it was near Sodom, the city of Sodom. If you know much about the Bible or you don't even know much about culture, you know that Sodom was a bad place. It was a place that God destroyed by fire in just a few more chapters of scripture. So Lot goes down and he pitches his tent toward Sodom. Now I'm very sure that Lot assured Abraham, I'm not going down to Sodom because that's a wicked place. I'm not even going near the place. I'm just going to go down there because that's where the good pasture is. This is totally an economic decision. It's got nothing to do with lifestyle. I'm not going to get messed up with those people. I'm just going down there because that's where the pasture is. Good choice or bad? Mm, Turns out to not be such a good choice in the end, but uh, so, so, so Lot does that, all right? Next thing we read about Lot is in chapter 15, 14 and 15 of of Genesis. And and in chapter 14, uh, there's a little war going on. There is a king named Chedilomar, who is the big king of the area. And all the cities of the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, and three other cities, pay tribute to this overlord king. Well, they decide they don't want to pay their taxes anymore. So they stop paying tribute. And uh, this king, Chedilomar, sends out his army, and he conquers those five cities, wipes them out, loots them, takes lots of hostages, and he goes off back toward his own city. Well, Abraham hears about this. And the reason he hears about this is because we learn from Genesis 14 that Lot is no longer living on the plain near Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom. Now, I don't know why he made that decision. Maybe it was for the better school system. Or, or, or maybe it was because uh, he wanted to be closer to the market, or his wife did. But now he's no longer living near Sodom, now he's living in Sodom. Well, Abraham hears about this raid made by Chedilomar, this overlord. And Abraham, he's a wealthy guy. Abraham is so wealthy that he has his own private army of 318 men. His own, you know, you've got to be pretty rich to have 318 security guards, right? So he takes his own private army of 318 men, and he chases this, this raiding king, overtakes him, surprises him, ambushes him, and he wins back all the loot, all the booty, and uh, all the hostages. And Lot and his family were among the hostages. And uh, Abraham gives Lot a chance to kind of rethink his decision. Do you want to go back to Sodom or you want to come back and go someplace else? And Lot chooses to go back to Sodom. Good decision or bad? Not a good decision. Right? Now, there's only one more time we hear about Lot. It's in Genesis 18 and 19. And uh, in Genesis 18 and 19, actually in Genesis 18, uh, three strangers show up at Abraham's camp by the Oaks of Mamre. And they tell him that God has decided that because the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are so wicked, God's going to destroy those cities. 
but he sent these three messengers who turn out to be angels in disguise. Uh, he, he says, uh, I've sent them to you because we, we want you to know what God's plan to do. And we're going to go down, we want to reassure you, we're going to go down to Sodom and we're going to rescue Lot and his family before the judgment falls. So these angels, two of them, go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom in particular, and they find Lot. And when they get to Sodom, Genesis chapter 19, they find Lot sitting in the gate of the city of Sodom. The cultural peace uh, only the people who are the rulers and the authorities of the town, the elders of the city, get to sit in the gate. So Lot moved towards Sodom, then he moved into Sodom, and now he's sitting in the gate. He's one of the leaders of the city of Sodom. The angels find him. Uh, he doesn't know they're angels, just that they are messengers, strangers, really, who've come to visit him. And they go to his household, and a mob gathers, and they want to uh, take the messengers, the, 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 the men who have come to visit, and use them for illicit purposes. And uh, Lot almost makes a good decision. He decides to protect the messengers who are guests in his house. They don't need protecting their angels, but he doesn't know that. And, uh, but then he fouls it up because then he, his idea of a righteous solution here is take my daughters instead. Uh, we don't even need to ask, good decision or bad day, right? Okay. We got that a terrible decision, like one of the worst you could possibly ever make. And uh, the angels solve the problem because they blind the mob. And they drag Lot and his family the next morning, kicking and screaming out of the city of Sodom. They don't want to go. But the angels get them out of there. And then Genesis 19 continues with the story, and it gets even worse so bad that Martin Luther, the great reformer, refused to ever read that chapter in public. Um, that's how bad it gets. If you don't know the story, I'm not even sure I want you to go read it, but that's how bad. Anyhow, that's all we know about Lot from the book of Genesis. So on the basis of what we now know about Lot, these three little episodes from his life, um, righteous man or not, how many people would put him on your list of righteous people? Nobody. How many would vote him off the island? <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I would never consider Lot to be a righteous man, except for the fact that in that passage in Peter, God says three times he was a righteous man. He repeats it. So maybe there will be an Elvis sighting in heaven after all. Huh? What do we learn from this? Well, I, I think the first conclusion we can draw is that you and I need to be really careful about deciding who's in and who's out. It's pretty easy to look at somebody's life and say, man, they're not going to be in heaven. You know, they're not righteous. They don't love God. But here's the deal. You don't know their heart. And I don't know their heart. Only God does. And apparently God knows things about people that we don't know, right? Thank God for that. He chooses, not us. The, the, the second conclusion I think we can draw is that righteous people, real followers of Jesus, can really make bad choices sometimes. And you've never done that, right? 
And, and in fact, when you make one bad choice, often it leads to a second bad choice, and then to another one, and then to another one, even more bad choices, each one taking us further and further from the place where we really want to be until sometimes we end up in places we thought we never would end up and never could get there. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? That's like one generation after Adam and Eve. Cain murders his brother. Sin always takes us further than we want to go faster than we thought we could get there. You've just been uh, reading about the story of King David's life, right? Anybody surprised by some of the things you read in that story? He made some bad choices. Folks, here's the point of it. It's very possible for Christians to become what I've come to call righteous disasters. Uh, They really love Jesus. And they want to serve him, but they just make one bad choice after another. Even King David did that. And Solomon and his son did even worse. In, in fact, if you read the story of all the kings of Judah, none of them fared very well. Only a couple of them were righteous at all. Most of them didn't finish well. If you read the biographies of the Bible and history, and if you look at the lives of some contemporary people, every once in a while we hear about a very famous pastor who kind of falls off the wagon. What happened? That became a righteous disaster. (laughs) I don't want to be a righteous disaster. And I don't want you to become a righteous disaster. But hear me well, that is a very great possibility for every one of us. None of us are exempt or immune. Now, we could get all hung up over this and trying to figure out whether Lot or Elvis was ever really saved or whether they lost their salvation. That's the wrong question. Here's the right question. How do I make sure that I don't become a righteous disaster? Because every one of us knows people who started out well and then things really unraveled, right? Right? We don't want to be that guy, that gal. That's why we've come to Psalm 1, which provides for us one of the most important keys, and it's a spiritual discipline, a practice, a habit that will help us to become one of the blessed ones. And whenever you read that word blessed or blessed in Scripture, if you want to translate it in 21st century English, you can just translate it with the word happy, because that's what it means blessed and happy. Um, Those words are used interchangeably both in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and in the Greek of the New Testament. And uh, God wants us to be blessed, happy, prosperous people. Look look at the description the psalmist gives of a blessed or happy person. It's right there in verse 3. It says, This person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither, Whatever he does prospers. Now, Jeremiah uses exactly the same analogy in chapter 17 of his book. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He'll be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. 
It doesn't fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up exactly the same idea when he says this to the Colossian believers. As you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, so continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. Now that's what I want my life to be like. I want to be the fruitful, healthy tree that's always green, that always bears fruit when it's supposed to. So in light of the fact that uh, way too many Christians never get those roots down deep enough and end up more like Elvis and Lot as righteous disasters, how do we avoid that fate? How do we ensure that we become like the tree planted by the streams of water? Well, let's go back to verse 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. Think about those three verbs, okay? Those, those action words. Walk, stand, and sit. Now think about what we saw from the life of Lot. There's a correlation. Pay attention. Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom. I'm not going to go live there. This is just an economic decision. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Next we find Lot living in Sodom. Don't stand in the way of sinners. When you're walking, you're still moving. When you're standing, you're stopped. (laughs) And then at the end we find him sitting in the gate of Sodom. Don't sit in the seat of mockers. When you sit down, you're settled. You see, Psalm 1 Psalm 1.1 is kind of a divine commentary on the life of Lot. It explains what was going on. It explains what happened to him, what happened to Elvis, what happens to lots and lots of people and still happens all the time. And this is incredibly important for us today because Jesus has called us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's our mandate, right? Now, Now, salt can't do its job if it never touches the meat. The primary job of salt in the ancient world was to preserve the meat. Okay, we use it just for flavoring, and it had that purpose even then, but the primary purpose of salt in the ancient world was to preserve food. But it can't do that if it doesn't touch it. And, and light isn't any good. It can't do its job if it's hidden under a bed or under a basket. Jesus said that. And, and that means we can't be separatists. We can't just form a, a little holy huddle and move our congregation out into the woods someplace and uh, put up the walls and and protect ourselves from the evil world out there because we can't do that. A lot of Christians try, and and the reason they try is because they're afraid of being righteous disasters. They don't want to lose it. They don't want to lose the way. They don't want to become unproductive. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus actually tells us to go into the world. And he prayed that God would keep us in the world without becoming of the world. So we need to be very aware that there's a danger in what we're trying to do. But the job that God's given this church, along with every other church that that preaches the gospel in this region, is to make sure that every man, woman, and child in this part of New York State gets to hear the good news about Jesus, right? Isn't that your job? It's not our job. Whose job is it? 
If you don't do it, who's going to do it? But unless we're careful, we won't influence them. They'll influence us. In fact, the major problem with the church in America today is that the world influences the church way more than the church influences the world. It shouldn't be that way. Because greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. But it is that way. So what can we do with the solutions in verse 2? Here's the prescription that will keep us from ever becoming righteous disasters. Here's the guaranteed path to true happiness and spiritual success. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. The book of Psalms is a book of wisdom. It begins with a strategically placed psalm of blessing. And the fundamental truth that's in this first psalm is that, hey, there's two roads, and there's only two roads. One leads to blessing. The other one leads to disappointment and judgment. One's a road of righteousness. The other one's a road of evil. One produces fruitfulness. The other produces disappointment and destruction. If you walk in the way of blessing, God says you'll be like the tree planted by the rivers of water. You'll bear fruit in season. Your leaves won't wither. If you choose the other road, you'll be like the chaff, the husks that the wind blows away, and you won't stand in the day of judgment. Everything rides on verse 2. This is how to be sure that we won't become yet another righteous disaster. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. Now, if you've been around the, the Christian Missionary Alliance for a while, you know we have some core values in our denomination. One of those core values says this. It's the fourth one. Knowing and obeying God's word is fundamental to all true success. It's not enough to know it. You also have to obey it, right? But you can't obey it unless you know it. So both words are important. Knowing and obeying God's word is fundamental to all true success. Sounds an awful lot like what God said to Joshua on the day he took over from Moses. Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, son of Nun, you're on. How would you like to step into the shoes of Moses? <laughs> That's a pretty big job. Um, but uh, God says to Joshua, here's the trick. Here's the secret. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't depart from it to the right or to the left, and you'll be successful wherever you go. Don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Case closed. That's pretty much what Moses said to the whole nation not very long before God said that to Joshua. Moses says, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These are the commandments I give you today. They're to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road. When you lie down and stand up, surround yourself with the Word of God. Know it and obey it, and it's all going to work. 
You'll be prosperous. I'm going to bless you. Psalm 119. That's where Mission 119 comes from. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How many of you know who William Wilberforce was? You know that name? Did you ever see the movie Amazing Grace? If you haven't seen that movie, go home, download it, and watch it. It's the story of how God used one man, William Wilberforce, to change the world. <laughs> because after he came into contact with Jesus through a man named John Newton, a guy who was a converted tra slave trader, uh, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that's John Newton's hymn. Uh, Wilberforce, a member of the House of Lords in Parliament, introduced into Parliament in 1787 a bill to abolish slavery and the slave trade throughout the British Empire. It took 40-some years for that bill to actually pass and for slavery and the slave trade to be abolished. Behind that bill, every step of the road was one man, William Wilberforce, and uh, it's an amazing story. And two days after that bill finally passed Parliament, he died. Uh, God helped him to finish the task he started. Um, great story. But I, I learned a lot about Wilberforce by reading a biography about him, but, but I learned more. One day, a number of years ago, I was reading his diary. A and uh, here's this man who fought this uphill battle. Everybody in, in England who had money or influence or power, hated him because he was messing with their income because the economy of the empire depended on slavery. But he stood firm and against all odds and all opposition, he saw this thing through. And I've often wondered why, why he would hang in there that long or how he could hang in there that long. And I was reading his diary. Here's the line I came across. As I was walking home from Parliament one night, back to his house, to his apartments, he said, I, I went through the park, quoting the 119th. He had memorized Psalm 119. The psalm that talks about how God's Word changes our lives, but also, by the way, is the longest chapter of the Bible. And Wilberforce, the politician, had memorized the whole thing. And he's walking home from the office. <laughs> he's quoting the 119th Psalm. And God is renewing his strength and his purpose. And he stays the course and he changes the world. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you'll be happy, blessed if you do them. If you know my commandments, you'll be happy if you, if you do them. Jesus also said, if you remain in me, John 15, that passage about the vine and the branches, and my words remain in you, you can ask for whatever you want in my Father's name, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Listen to me. This book, the Bible, is the living Word of God. It's God-breathed. It's alive. It's quick. It's powerful. It's sharp. 
And every single person who engages the word of God with an open heart and with an open mind cannot fail to be transformed by it because it's alive. As a pastor, a long time ago, I learned that I can't change anybody's heart. Talked a little bit about this last night. I can't change anyone. And my sermons can't change anybody. I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. And the instrument he uses is the Word of God. And if you understand what that means, you understand that it means that the most important thing that you or I could ever do is to help people get into the Word of God because it's alive. And the Holy Spirit uses this book like nothing else to change people's lives. I said last night that uh, I kind of imagine myself to be a spiritual midwife. Okay, kind of a weird a- analogy. But it works because, see, I don't cause pregnancies. Midwives don't do that. Uh, I don't make the baby come. Midwives can't do that. I don't bring about new life. I just kind of help the process along, and, and I clear away obstructions that get in the way by helping people to engage with and understand the Word of God. And I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, if I can help people understand and encounter this book, the Word of God, their lives are going to be dramatically changed because they're going to come face to face with the God of the Bible. It's His book. It's His Word. It's alive. Christian, do you want to be like Jesus? Then do what Jesus did. Every time the enemy tempted Jesus to sin, how did he respond? It is written. Satan gets him out in the wilderness. He tempts him three times. Three times Jesus comes back with quoting the Bible. All, by the way, passages from the book of Deuteronomy. It is written. Psalm 119.11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the conclusion of the matter can be stated in the form of a very simple proposition. Your spiritual success or failure will be directly related to the the role that the Word of God plays in your daily life. If you know it and obey it, you'll succeed. If not, well, you have the possibility of becoming the next righteous disaster. I've had a lot of jobs in my 47 years in the ministry. But I have no doubt that my greatest legacy as a pastor is going to be Mission 119. I built that app, and we launched it at our church in Ridgeway, never dreaming that it was going to end up being used in 50 states and 50 countries. And maybe 15,000 people tomorrow morning are going to click on that app. That blows me away. But I did it not because you need a new program in your life. You don't. And and I didn't do it because I think that I'm the best Bible teacher. I'm not. You probably have one that's just as good as me sitting right back there right now. But I did it because I know that if you will commit to this discipline of being in the Word of God every day and obeying what you learn, that you will form a life-altering habit 
and you will put yourself in the way of the word. You'll be in a place where you'll be able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit of God. And you'll learn how to feed yourself. Because at the end of the day, when the heat's on and the trials come and the enemy is trying everything he can do to bring you down to become the next righteous disaster, it will never be enough to say, well, I believe this is because that's what Pastor Soper said. Or that's what Pastor Detweiler told me. Or even that's what Billy Graham said. You need to be able to say, this is what God's Word says, and I know it's true because I've read it. I've meditated on it. I've learned it. This is what God says. So my congregation is used to the fact that every time I preach a sermon, I'm pretty old school. I give homework. Okay. So here's your homework. Some of you are already doing it. A lot of you are already doing it. For the next seven days, I want you to commit that you will read the Bible every day and reflect on how its message is going to change your life in the next 24 hours. So you're reading and obeying, okay? Will you make that commitment? If you're not already doing it, I want you to challenge you to, to, to make that commitment for just the next seven days. Okay, that's not too big. You can do this. Uh, ten minutes a day in the Word. Ten more minutes to, to, to think about what you read, to pray about it, to ask God how you can apply it to your life, how you can obey what you read. And uh, since the rest of the congregation is already doing Mission 119, well, uh, your reading assignments are on the front page of your bulletin. I just saw it for next week, right? It starts with the book of Proverbs. So that's what you're going to do. The whole congregation is going to do this next week. Not just the, 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 the know the word junkies. Everybody's going to do it this week. And I challenge you at the end of the week to ask a simple question. Am I better off for having done this? Or am I worse off for having done it? Is this going to help me to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water with roots that are deep so that I'll have a life that God will bless and so that I'll never become the next righteous disaster? Because men and women, I don't want to be that guy. And you don't want to be that guy or that gal. But we all know too many stories of people that it happened to so we don't want to be that person, right? Okay, how many of you willing to take that challenge for this week? Now, I won't be here next week to ask, but, but Pastor Detweiler will be here. He's standing right back there. He's standing up, okay? So he's going to ask you next week, did you do your homework, all right? Knowing and obeying God's Word is fundamental to all true success. It's not the only discipline God wants to build into your life. There are lots of other ones, too. He wants you to learn how to pray. He wants you to learn to confess your sin as soon as you know you've sinned. Those are also spiritual disciplines. But it all starts with this one. This is number one. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against
Father, help us. We don't want to be like Lot. We don't want to be the next spiritual Elvis. We want to be like Jesus, who every time the enemy tried to trip him up, responded by saying, it is written. And then he stood the test. Lord, we want to become the tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in season. We want to be the ones of whom it's one day said they were blessed. They were truly blessed. They brought forth fruit in season and God blessed whatever they did because they were committed to the word of God. They knew it and they obeyed it. Help us, Lord. Those are the men and women we want to be. Help us to change Saratoga Springs, the United States of America, the world of the 21st century, for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.